Welcome to the Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, we'll be talking about how the fasting oracles in Zechariah 7 and 8 challenge the empty moralism that is still plaguing us 2,500 years later, and why we keep trying to substitute man-made rituals for the heart changes that God expects. But we'll try to do more than understand why we add to the scripture in this way. We'll ask what we should do to stop it. You can spot a moralist a mile away because he has so many convictions. He's always taking stands on questions other people don't even realize exist. And he takes pride in how uncompromising he is, especially when the world around him compromises so much. You're probably familiar with Jesus' story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Despite all his self-righteous bragging, the Pharisee isn't justified, while the taxman, despite his low profession, is justified because he humbles himself and appeals to God's mercy. But have you ever wondered how these men would have looked from the outside? The Pharisee, as a devout moralist, must have seemed so impressive, so righteous. It's only when Jesus pulls back the curtain on his heart that we realize all this moralism is very, very empty. So in this episode, we're going to dive into the problem of empty moralism and what to do about it. At Grace, we are continuing through the book of Zechariah, and right now we're working through a middle section in chapters 7 and 8 that I've been calling Fasting Oracles because these chapters set off a sequence that is, like the catalyst is this question that comes from the people of Bethel, north of Jerusalem. They're wanting to know if it's okay to stop fasting. They've been for 70 years fasting for four months out of the year to remember different events in the fall of Jerusalem. And so now that Jerusalem is reoccupied, the temple is being rebuilt, they send a delegation to say, can we now stop fasting and start feasting? Now, as we said in an earlier episode, as we observe the season of Easter, There's a real sense in which we've now gone from fasting to feasting. But the way that the prophet responds to this question is a little bit different, right? Because the fasting that these people have been doing is not fasting God has commanded. This is something that they've invented for themselves. And so... In this segment, we want to take a little bit of time to unpack the idea of the ways in which good people, religious people, moral people, well-meaning people sometimes invent pieties for themselves 
things that God hasn't commanded, but that we treat as the word of God. We treat as very important. Try to understand why it is we do this, what the motives behind it are, what some of the examples of this kind of behavior are. Maybe we'll get into what we should do about it as well. So Cameron, when you think about this question of false piety, of of, let's say man-made rituals, or to use a good uh, Puritan phrase, will worship, human worship, not instituted by God. There are a lot of examples of this throughout the history of the church that we could focus on. What are some of the ones that come to mind for you that stand out? I could start with a funny one. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is a joke I heard once from a, a Lutheran seminary student said that when Jesus ascended back into heaven after his resurrection, immediately thereafter, the organ fell down from heaven. <laughs> and it's, it's a joke, of course, but there are traditions that would say, okay, music is one of these areas where, where piety is really serious and only certain forms of music are acceptable, not just to us, but to God. And that's one I've dealt with my whole life as a musician, having to kind of thread the needle. So that, that's a big one to me that comes to mind. Sure. No, that's a great example. I, I think just thinking in terms of music, there's a lot of things we could come up with. I know that when I was growing up, sort of in the, the, the fever swamps of, of my theological youth, there was a lot of concern about syncopation, a lot of uh, uh, concern about what was referred to as the devil's beat that sort of thing. And it's, it's sort of inherently corrupting influence. Um, I think delving further back, uh, you've, you've talked about the Lutheran affinity for pipe organs. I think there are certain reform people who would agree with that joke, except that when the organ was thrown down from heaven, it, it was thrown down in order to shatter it <laughs> yeah. because there is of course, in the reform tradition, a, a belief among some in exclusive psalmody, number one, so only singing the psalms, nothing else, and doing so without any musical accompaniment whatsoever, uh, singing in four-part harmony uh, as if that were the only way of singing that God approves of. Now, as I'm saying this, of course, I, I want to point out that there are people who believe this who would argue this is from Scripture, and some can make better arguments than others. And I don't want to treat it all as a matter of indifference. I think that when you think about music or any of these things, there are questions of of taste and even theological questions that are relevant to think through as well. At the same time, I think we can all admit that there's a lot of stuff that's treated as gospel that is really culture. And it's good to separate between those. So Outside the realm of music, I think a lot about the uh, like the moral rules of conservative Christianity in the 20th century. So there's a lot of things that people associate with Christianity. That would be, uh, for example, no drinking, no smoking, right? Because the Bible condemns drinking and smoking. Well. It may be a surprise to you to find out when you read the Bible that smoking is not mentioned because it wasn't a thing 
in the biblical era. Drinking is mentioned. Uh, drunkenness is condemned, but drinking is not. And so drinking alcohol is something the Bible speaks of positively. There's a reason why in our sacrament we have wine as well as bread. So again, we have a man-made rule that is not only not taught in Scripture, but actually contradicts what is taught in Scripture and is a great example of what we might think of as like a, a Pharisee impulse to protect God's law by hedging it in with man's law as well. So I guess one question people might wonder is whether things like this matter all that much. I mean, if I'm so busy not breaking these invented man-made rules, uh, I'll never break the rules that really matter, so isn't it okay? Maybe the Bible does say it's okay to drink, but if I say that it's a sin, and as a result I don't experience drunkenness, isn't that basically good? What's, what's the problem with, with these man-made rules? It's a it's a good question because on the one hand I I can see the point that you're you're making that maybe a little extra caution drinking nothing at all abstaining totally will keep me from the sin of drunkenness so what's so wrong with that I I think back to your sermon from Sunday talking about Zechariah giving the people the the Lord's response and his question God's question to the people is really were you doing those things for me or not and I, I think the the implicit answer is no you you weren't doing these things for me in other words you were you weren't doing them to worship but you were just upholding them for your own sake whether to feel righteous or or something else and it's true for both the fasting and the feasting right he says you you didn't fast for me you fasted for yourselves, and you eat and you drink for yourselves, not for me, is the implication. And so in both cases, it is self-interested, which I think raises another question, though, like self-interested in what way? Like in what way are these disciplines or privations for ourselves? Because if I, if I invent a little ritual, if I deny myself something and I do it, as I say, for God, out of a sense of conviction, um, in what way could that serve me? I mean, clearly, it's something I'm doing for God. And I think that's, that's really the question. The motives underneath is what I think we need to understand. Like, why do you think it is that people do this? I think that the answer that I instinctively want to give is that it's a form of self-justification, that they're we are trying to make ourselves right with God, to, to please God in, in some way. Do you, do you think there's something there? I don't want to oversimplify all, all sure, instances, but sure. surely that's the case and has been the case in my own life. Right. To feel good about myself in relation to God or to maybe put God in a kind of debt to me that, that he owes me this feasting now, like the people were saying. Right. So, so let's address kind of the us versus them thing as well, because yeah. I like the way that you, you turned it. And I asked you, why did they do this? And then you change it into we. And that's exactly what you have to do, I think, to understand this, because we recognize these things in others much more easily than we do in ourselves. 
But to understand them, we have to, to think of the ways that we do them. You know, other people's moralism, like I know the reason they do it is because they're pretending to be good, but they're really bad. But does that really give me insight into, into the motives? Not really. It, it's when I think about the ways I've done it. You know, the feasts and fasts that I've invented for myself that I begin to understand. And I do think that idea of self-justification is a part of it. We want to justify ourselves. Like we want to know that we are good, that we are righteous, let's say. And this is a way to assure ourselves of that. A person who doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't go to the movies, doesn't dance, whatever it is, that person has an easy way of distinguishing themselves from others. Right? I can tell because I don't do these things that I must be one of the righteous. And I'm surrounded by people who claim to be good people, but they do all of those things. And so in comparison, it feels like I must be ahead of that. And there can be that sense of assurance. I think that's that's a part of it. Maybe not the whole. I think you, we could also say that there's a kind of group mentality where when you're surrounded by people who also do the things that you do, confess the creeds that you do, that you're affirmed, yes, we are the righteous, rather than, you know, I think we, yeah, you're right, we can compare ourselves to others and say, I'm righteous in comparison to them. Yes. Or maybe sometimes it's, you know, we're all saying the same creed together now, and I feel, I feel affirmed. So Right. And, and this is one of those instances, the Zechariah passage, because this is a collective question, right? The people of Bethel and their leaders have asked this question because they're all in it together. They fast and observe these things together as a society. And I think that's also true as well for us. Um, If your thing is there's only one translation of the Bible that God approves of, the odds are you're in a community of people who all agree with you and also agree on which translation of the Bible that's going to be, right? So you're kind of together taking that quote-unquote stand And it gives you a sense of belonging as well as a sense of justification. And and I can say from my own experience that it can be a way of validating yourself despite the fact that you're small and seemingly inconsequential, right? So maybe your faith community, there's just a handful of you and, and, you know, you haven't accomplished much and people don't really see much in you, but because you're the only ones who carry that standard, you're the ones that are doing what no one else will do, it gives you a sense of validation. And we're psychologizing here, right? We're kind of imagining the motives that that we have for doing what we do. But I think there's a value in that because as sinners, it's helpful to understand why we do the things that we do. But it's not sufficient just to understand why we do the things that we do. We also need to think about the solution, the answer. And in the book of Zechariah, we get it very clearly from God's own word through the prophet's lips because there's a contrast. 
God isn't interested in their fasting. He's not interested in their piety. But there is something he does want from them, and it's a change of heart. Right? He has sent prophets time and time again to call upon the people to, to truly uh, love mercy and do justice and walk with him. And instead of doing that, they have invented these other pious rituals. They've basically done the, the Cain's sacrifice thing where God says, here's what I want. And pious, well-meaning people say, you know what? I'm going to give you something different, but just as good in my eyes. But God wants what he wants. God expects what he has demanded from us to be done. And so this is a great example. He wants changed hearts, but he wants the people to be softened and in New Testament terms, to be walking with Christ in the spirit, not to be walking in a sort of self-righteous moralism. And so for us, a similar kind of, let's say, call to repentance slash action is necessary here. When we find ourselves slipping into these, um, forms of moralism, when we start finding our value in these identity markers that separate us from them? It's kind of a related question. How do we know when piety becomes false? Because we're, I mean, every tradition has its traditions. Every, sure. every church has its liturgy. So when does, when does piety become false piety? There's two tracks maybe to think about. So one of them, and this this is very informed by the Westminster Standards, one of them is when we invent snares for human consciences, right? When we elevate some human invention to the level of God's word, we make it something that you must, as a, as a believer, practice. What we're doing there, that's crossed the line, right? That, that's a sinful impulse. God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and we don't have the power. Even pastors do not have the power to bind the conscience apart from what Scripture actually teaches. So, so there's that. Anything you know that's, that's imposed, that is man-made, has that quality to it. But also there's this other interesting thing where even good things, even things that, that have been instituted, by God, even things that that are legitimate can also serve this purpose. You know, as an example, so we'll tell in ourselves a little bit. Um, I was recently talking to someone I was introduced to about church stuff. You know, they find out, oh, you're a pastor and start asking questions about your church. And he asked how frequently we have communion. And I said, weekly. And the response was, oh, that's wonderful. And just kind of this really, you know, that's the way it should be and, and all of that. And, and I feel like I've had those conversations before where uh, we are, you know, celebrating the fact that we're able to you know, come to the table every Lord's Day. But that can easily become one of these identity markers, right, that separates us from them the people that aren't doing what we're doing. And, and this is 
legitimate, and I would argue strongly from Scripture that this is the ideal, this is the way it ought to be, and yet even that in our sinful hands can become a kind of false piety. So I think on the one hand, we've got to guard against what the Bible doesn't teach, but on the other hand, we have to guard against abusing what the Bible does teach. One way I've thought about liturgy, so going through the motions, not in the negative sense, but actually, you know, going through the motions of worship at at church is that seems to be where some people get caught up and and we can easily fall into a sense of false piety because we just do this every week. So we do, we you know, we sing our song we confess our sin, we say our creed, whatever it is. On the other hand, and this is one of the really paradoxical, mysterious things about liturgy, is we need those things and those habits, rituals, to train us and to teach us to, to do them properly. So it's, it's not just the human things that we do. We need the Spirit to be working through them, and I think there should always be in Christians, this dependence and this openness to the Spirit working, and yet acknowledging that sometimes the Spirit works through these means. We talk about the Spirit using means, God working through means a lot. So it's it's not one or the other. It's not like, let's get rid of all of this tradition because it we could fall into piety or false piety. But on the other hand, it's not absolute dependence on it. It's kind of this mysterious mix. Have you felt some of that before? Yeah, I'll give you an analogy. So I always, growing up, wanted to be a swashbuckling sword fighter, you know. So I dreamed of taking a fencing class. And, you know, when you imagine what that would be like, you have this picture of like showing up to class and there's a bunch of swords on the wall and the teacher's like, grab a sword and start attacking, you know, and you're going to do that. In fact, in the talent show in my elementary school, a group of my friends and I with our toy swords entered the talent show to sword fight and we had to audition and we literally broke our swords beating on each other on the stage and then the teacher said, well, that was wonderful, but, and she gave us a little script to learn from a play. And we, we ended up only being able to draw our swords. We didn't even get to cross them. But the disappointment is that in the classroom, you have to do all of this sort of wax on, wax off repetition, you know, thrusting and lunging. And it doesn't feel like sword fighting, right? It's, it's just that repetitive motion but it does have the effect of ingraining those motions into you so that when called upon, they suddenly combine and they suddenly uh, have an organic flow to them. And I think liturgy is the same. So yes, like fencing class or like a kata in your martial arts routine, it is something that if you're not applying yourself, you can just go through the motions. And that's not good. Like you should be fully invested in the experience of worship. But even if you're just going through the motions, you're being formed. And when called upon, you will find that you have at your disposal things you didn't realize that you had, that there are things in your memory, things that, that are sort of ingrained in you, whether it's being able to recite the Lord's Prayer, you know, or to be able to pick out phrases from our various confessions of faith or our songs will come to you 
when you need them most and you didn't apply yourself. It's just that you were formed that way. But even on a deeper level, some of those rhythms of confession and pardon, for example, are ingrained in us. And so we come to expect that they work in a certain way. We've talked about this before, the way that every part of the liturgy is a blueprint for discipleship. So that if you want to know, how should I live as a Christian? All you have to do is look at what are the things we do in worship and now do that in your life. So in that sense, these are good habits that are forming us. We shouldn't abuse them by going through the motions, but even when we do, there is a forming power that's beneficial. So again, though, what makes the difference is heart change. Right. If all we do is the ritual, if all we do is is show up for church and do what's expected of us so that people think we're righteous, then we're essentially in the position of those Israelites who are being told, you're worried about the buildings, but God's worried about the people. And it's not the restoration of the city, it's the restoration of the people that grace is concerned about. And so I think that's the, the saving grace, so to speak. The, the thing that guards us is not avoiding this, avoiding that. The thing that guards us is focusing on the change of heart. Because the reality is you may, by God's grace, find yourself uh, in like the wrong kind of church. You may find yourself not experiencing this kind of enriching liturgy that we're talking about. You may be deprived of some of these good things, but with the Spirit at work in your heart and a a sensitiveness to the Spirit's moving, that is more important than going through the motions. I think that's the key. So as we are walking through this season of Easter and we're focusing on new life in Christ and resurrection, I think it's important always to keep in mind that that heart change, developments of our spiritual life and heart is what the gospel is doing in us right now. Well, that's all the time we have for the commentary this week. Thank you, Cameron, and thanks to you, our listeners. We hope you'll join us next time. And in the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. It helps new listeners discover the commentary. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.